Catherine Hemans may be the Astronomer Royal for Scotland, a professor of astrophysics at Edinburgh University and the director of a scientific institute in Germany. But to many people in Portobello, she is simply her children's mum. She moved here with her family when appointed to a lectureship at Edinburgh in 2008. During a career which saw her receive a master's degree from Edinburgh and then a doctorate from Oxford, she has shown a dedication to understanding one of the scientific puzzles of the age, dark matter. When we look up at the night sky, we mainly see the millions of stars of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. But there are millions of galaxies beyond that, and yet, she says, they only make up about 5% of the universe. It's one of the many things I wanted to find out more about when she came along earlier this week to record this episode of the podcast. Catherine Hamans, Astronomer Royal for Scotland, how good is that? It's so exciting. No, I'm really delighted to be the Queen's new astronomer in Scotland. Yeah. Now, OK, this is an honorary post. It but is. my goodness, does this give you a platform? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so it's a, an honorary title. It dates back to 1834. The first Astronomer Royals in the UK, their job was basically to work out how to navigate by the stars so the ships could sail across to buy their goods. But these days it's an honorary title and I'm really excited to use it to share my excitement for astronomy with everyone and to encourage everyone to go outside, have a look up in the night sky and just check out what's up there. Now, part of this is you're going to take the opportunity to go out and enthuse people. Absolutely, yeah. So I think some people think there's a, maybe a bit of a barrier towards getting into astronomy. You know, oh, if I don't have a telescope, there's no point. But even the most basic pair of binoculars, have a look at the moon through them. And it is absolutely gorgeous. You see the shadows in the craters. Um, you don't need a telescope to appreciate what's up in the night sky. So um, at the moment, we're coming into the summer in the Northern Hemisphere, which of course we are in Portobello, you can look at the summer triangle. The three brightest stars in the sky, they form a, a triangle. And they're fun to look at because Vega, which is one of the brightest ones in the top right-hand corner, the light from Vega took 25 light years to get to us. So if you see Vega, you can imagine what you were doing 25 years ago. I don't know what you were doing 25 years ago, David. I don't, I don't like to think about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll confess, David, that 25 years ago I was dancing around my bedroom to the Spice Girls who released their debut single 25 years ago. So that's Vega. But more interestingly, maybe, is Deneb, which is off to the left-hand side. Now, the light from Deneb has taken 2,616 years to reach us. It's a much further away star. That suggests it's actually a pretty big star. It's a really big star, yeah. So when that light left Deneb, King Nebuchadnezzar was being crowned King of Babylon and uh, deciding what to hang in his garden. So yeah, you're right. That means it's a super, super bright star and it is 200,000 times brighter than our own sun. And if Deneb was in our own solar system, it would be so big, it would come all the way out to the orbit of Earth. So, you know, you don't need a telescope to marvel at these things. You can just go and have a look at the Sun Triangle and think, oh, Vega, what was I doing 25 years ago? Cool, the light from there, King Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> <laughs> and you said there was a third one, because it's a triangle. There is a third one, Altair. Yeah, Altair is the lower part of the triangle. Fun fact about Altair is that, so our own sun takes about 25 days to spin our own sun. Altair is spinning so fast, it does one full revolution every nine hours. So it's actually squashed flat a bit like a rugby ball. <laughs> I could tell you so many facts about all the gorgeous things in our um, universe, but the other fun thing about the Summer Triangle is if 
you can leave Portobello and head out somewhere really dark in Scotland. So we have these fantastic dark sky parks, Galloway and the Cairngorms. They're internationally recognised as you know the places to go for dark skies. If you're lucky enough for the clouds to clear, then if you find the Summer Triangle, the Milky Way passes from Deneb and then through in between Vega and Altair. So you can go and look at the Milky Way now. This is a sort of a band of stars across the night sky, so you need to be really dark to see them. But it marks out the spiral arm that kind of swirls around our own Milky Way galaxy. So you can look at these stars and kind of think about your space in our own Milky Way galaxy. So for every human being on Earth, there are about four stars per person on Earth in the Milky Way galaxy. That just tells you, I mean, there are billions of people on Earth, seven billion people. So each one of those people on Earth get to choose four stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And that's just our own galaxy. And then beyond that, there's probably an infinite number of galaxies. And each one of those stars, David, probably has a planet going around it. So somewhere, somewhere in the universe, someone else is recording a porty podcast. The only thing is, Catherine, <laughs> yeah. we live in Scotland. We do live in Scotland. I'm looking out of the window at yes. that. And it's <laughs> covered with cloud. <laughs> Presumably there are actually other ways of looking which don't really need a clear night. All yeah, of these absolutely. Things. So professional astronomers don't just observe in, in the optical. So, yeah, you're, we have X-ray satellites. They tend to be um, up out in space because the uh, atmosphere of the Earth is very good at blocking out X-rays, which is good because the sun in particular produces a lot of killer gamma rays and X-rays that would completely blitz us if we didn't have that nice atmosphere. So, yeah, X-rays usually above the ground. Radio, that's the other end of the spectrum, really long wavelengths. So we have, oh, we're building a new telescope in the outback in Australia called the Square Kilometre Array. And then in between those two ends of the energy spectrum of light, we've got obviously optical and the near-infrared. So near-infrared, um, think of the movies where the army goes out at night and they put on their spectacles and it's sort of green, everything looks green. That's the, the near-infrared. Why do we do that? You learn so much about all of the different things that are going on in these objects in the universe by looking at all of these different types of light. So, for example, a black hole. Everyone loves black holes. Think of the biggest thing that you can possibly imagine. I don't know, Ben Nevis or, I don't know, something really big. And then squash it down into a full stop. That's a bit like a black hole, sort of huge amounts of mass all compressed into a small amount of space. So that has so much gravity around it. It basically sucks everything towards it. That heats everything up tremendously. So you get these sort of, it's almost like a whirlpool of gas kind of falling into these black holes. Incredibly, incredibly hot gas. You know, the hottest gas you can possibly imagine. And when gas gets heated up to those temperature, it emits in X-rays. So you can look at black holes in X-rays, but then further out, it's emitting in the radio. So you can learn loads about the physics of black holes just by looking at these different types of light. Also, we can go into space. Some of my early work was using the Hubble Space Telescope. So we were really lucky. We got 100 orbits. So each orbit Hubble takes a different picture. It gave us 100 orbits to map out a big super cluster of galaxies. So the Milky Way is our own galaxy. A cluster of galaxies is when there's about 10 to 100 galaxies and a super cluster is a cluster of clusters. So we use the Hubble Space Telescope to do that. And you don't need to worry about the atmosphere when you've got space-based telescopes. Now, just picking up from your reference to black holes. Yes. Your interest is not in the things we can see, but in the things we can't. Exactly. The dark universe. 
You're on the dark side. I know. I think we call it that just because we're all inner Star Wars fans. I haven't met an astronomer yet who doesn't love Star Wars. Anyway, dark matter and dark energy. These are two dark entities in our universe. All of the stuff we can see, I mean, I'm sure people have seen these gorgeous Hubble Space Telescope images of all of these gorgeous galaxies. But if our theories about the universe are correct, so we have to have our, our fundamental theories of physics, we have um, models that can explain the universe that we observe, but in order to explain all of these galaxies that we can see and the patterns that they form, we need to invoke two dark entities. The first we call dark matter. This is the strong sort of gravitational force in our universe. If, if we didn't have dark matter, our own Milky Way galaxy would kind of fall apart, basically. The stars in our own Milky Way galaxy are spinning around too fast. They need this extra gravity from dark matter to keep them bound. So that's one dark entity we've introduced. And the second is something called dark energy, which explains the observations that we're making at the moment that our universe is expanding, but that expansion is getting faster and faster each and every day. Now we don't have a good understanding of where these two dark entities come from and they combined appear to make up 95% of the universe. So you may say David that that's a bit of a, a failure for science if we don't understand what makes up 95% of our universe but this is what makes my job fun <laughs> because in order to be able to understand all of this dark stuff that we don't understand at the moment we're going to have to kind of have a real revolution in in our understanding of physics and and science as a whole so you know when when einstein came along he completely turned physics on his head and could be it could be that in order to explain this this dark universe that we think has to be there to explain all of the observations and the stuff that we can see one idea is maybe we need to go beyond Einstein's theory of gravity. Maybe we need to look for a different explanation of gravity. Or it could be there's a fifth force out there. Or it could be we're in a multiverse. There's oodles of ideas out there and that's what makes it fun. <laughs> but that's the whole point. Being a scientist is actually about thinking of the difficult questions and maybe trying to find an answer. Even if you never actually find the answer, the search is what's important. Absolutely. I mean, I... I think science is the best job you could possibly hope for. What other job do you get to think, huh, this is interesting. I wonder if anyone knows the answer to this particular question. Like you say, in astronomy, we're, we're asking the biggest questions that there are, like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? These are major scientific questions. And then people pay us to go and build experiments, design new instruments, design new telescopes, experiments, to go and answer these massive questions. It's the most creative, innovative, beautiful job that there could possibly be. <laughs> and that is what you're trying to get across to the younger generation, that there is fun to be had. Because you and I both know that there are children out there who say, science is boring, science is dull. Yeah. And your job is going to be to say, oh, no, it's not. Yeah, no, it's, it, they either say it's boring or dull, or they say it's too difficult for me. And I think that's really sad. So on the it's too difficult for me, I, I'm, I am, have been homeschooling my three fabulous children, as, as many parents across the country have been. I have a whole new appreciation for teachers and teaching things. But I did find myself during homeschooling just get to the point of like, oh, don't worry, darling, I couldn't do this either. 
when I was your age. But then I had to sort of stop myself and say, no, it's important. It's, it's really important our children learn to read. It's really important our children learn to write and also to do maths. No matter how challenging as parents we found these different things, we have to keep encouraging our children to persevere because everything they learn is challenging. But somehow we kind of let people off with with not pushing themselves with maths because or it, it wasn't something that I could do so um to all the um particularly mothers grandmothers and aunts out there please don't tell your young girls if they're struggling with maths or don't worry love I couldn't do that either encourage them to do it because if we can have kids who are educated in maths and science and they can do it it's yes it is challenging but just as challenging as learning how to read and write was it's just a new skill set that they have to push themselves towards if we can encourage the kids to really do that then you know when as they go on they're going to be making the discoveries of you know of the next decades if the pandemic's taught us anything david it's that we need scientists (laughs) (laughs) i'm just remembering uh, about a particular relative of mine who's doing badly at mathematics at school and teachers went in to see him and the teacher said it's just this the boys know mathematical Uh, (laughs) i kid you not so they decided to employ a tutor and the tutor said he's bored he's capable of doing university So, I mean, there's there's that balance between yeah. the children who are advanced and the children who are, uh, need encouragement. Absolutely. I mean, if you ask any three-year-old what they want to be when they grow up, probably they'll tell you they want to be an astronaut or a dinosaur hunter or something. They'll tell you something sciencey. Kids love science. Something we're doing wrong as as a our culture somehow is is putting some kids off science too early on. And and I think you're right. If we can grab their attention. So this gives me an opportunity to tell you what I want to do as the Astronomer Royal for Scotland. We have these fantastic outdoor residential centres across Scotland where the majority of our primary school children get to spend a whole week and they go off and do abseiling and gorge walking and hill walking and all sorts of awesome adventures. But they're there for the whole week and the Scottish weather is bad but surely there'll be one night when they're there when the sky is clear. So my first job as astronomer for Scotland is to get telescopes installed in all of these centres and to train the staff there how to use it because I think, you know, our kids are so used to seeing things on their screens all the time. But if I can set things up so they can see the rings of Saturn with their own eyes or the moons of Jupiter with their own eyes or maybe there are some star clusters that are almost as old as the universe themselves if they can see that with their very own eyes it's not on a screen it's not a photograph it's not virtual reality it's real to let them make that connection really early on with the universe and with science I hope that that gives them just that seed to go ah science may be challenging but it's totally awesome (laughs) because I certainly feel like that You can hear from the bubbling enthusiasm in her voice that she's an evangelist for science, but she doesn't just want to preach to the converted. She wants to use her role as Astronomer Royal for Scotland to inspire, to influence generations of young women in particular to reach for the stars, and not just literally. It's important that they have the ambition to succeed in whatever field they choose. I'm tempted to suggest that her motto might be that of Muriel Sparks' Miss Jean Brodie, Give me a child of an impressionable age and she is mine for life. But Catherine Haymans would be doing so in the most positive way possible.